Well, the thing I like about doing uh, science is when we think we know everything, when then we discover that we don't know everything. And we thought we had uh, inheritance pretty much nailed with genetics and uh, the theory of evolution. But it turns out there's a very significant force uh, as well that's all operating, and that is epigenetics. And how does epigenetics affect our offspring? How do we live? Uh, how our lifestyle affects our children? And my guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Sundas Nizamani. Good morning, Sundas. Good morning, Rod. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. And... Sundas is a, oh, you're doing your PhD research at the Faculty of Health, University of Canberra? Canberra. Yes. That's right. Now, before we get into your research, we need a little bit of background, epigenetics, epi meaning fringe or outer. What What is epigenetics? So epigenetics is um, the study of how your behaviours and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. So they don't essentially change the DNA itself, but they can be they can function like a switch that can turn off or turn on certain uh, genes that a, a person has. So something I do today might affect my offspring when they're born. Essentially, yes. So uh, if you have before you have a child, if whatever behaviors that you have, such as you know your um, nutrition habits or your lifestyle, physical activity habits, they can um, if they make changes in your body, they can then essentially make changes in your future child's um, body as well. Now it's different for a man and a woman, I presume. So a man. For men, has to be prior to conception. Yes, so that's one of the things that I really wanted to talk about because uh, to date, most of the responsibility has been borne by mothers in terms of healthy lifestyles, you know, prior to conception. But I think that's because when you look at a woman as a mother, you can obviously picture her as pregnant. So the mind automatically goes that a woman carries the child, so she basically transfers most of the genes to the child. But the transference of genes or the establishment of uh, genetic, um, the genetic composition actually happens before the child is even conceived. So that's why the father and the mother are both essential um, when it comes to healthy lifestyles and the future of the offspring. Well, yes, well, the focus is on the woman, isn't it? I think my mother took uh, fluoride tablets when, when she was pregnant with me. Right. We don't do that now. I think it's in our water for most most people uh, or don't drink no alcohol at all because it affects the developing fetus so this is quite a new idea isn't it that the father can affect the health of the offspring yes it was um, sort of the the idea originally uh, originated by David Barker he noticed but he his study primarily focused on the women the mothers but he focused before the uh, the population before before, the, before conception, so it was in pregnancy, and that idea of a gene being established before conception, then um, you know, extended from mother to the father as well, thinking that okay, that the father is also contributing um, some genetic elements, and that's how um, it was sort of established that both are equally important. Both, both are important. Yes. Yes. So. The idea of Lamarckian evolution is one that was competing with Darwin's notion of evolution when uh, he was developing his theories. And that uh, the idea of Lamarckian evolution was that 
your genetic inheritance well they didn't know about genetics of course then <laughs> but there was the, uh, the the classic was the giraffe wasn't it that during life a giraffe would reach up to reach a tall leaf or something right, and therefore yes. its offspring would develop long necks and so on and so on so th that was kind of discredited wasn't it yes but I can't say it's exactly true, but you can see elements of this, though, because if a child is born or conceived, uh, I should say the word conceived, not born, uh, when a parent is um, experiencing malnutrition, so the, the clearest example from history is uh, famine. So if a couple is experiencing famine and a child is conceived, so they have these, um, these genes that uh, are uh, transferred into the child that are essentially there to help them um, overcome the situation of famine. But see, when a child is born, the famine is, um, well, let's hope no longer there. So the child, but the child still has those genes that will try to retain all the nutrients. But if the child is getting the normal amount of nutrients, then they will still have the, um, the genetic habit of storing all of those nutrients and thus that's how um, it will be easier for them to be say overweight and obese as compared to a child that was not conceived during uh, a famine. Oh, that's that's really interesting so it's not an accident then it's really an adaptive mechanism. Yes so your body is actually trying to help you. Oh now you mentioned uh, famine you were telling me before we went live about the Dutch famine. I have to confess my shameful ignorance about the Dutch famine. That's it's quite a story there, isn't there? It is, and from a research point of view, I just it I get so excited every time I'm reading about it because it's it's one of those studies that you take a population from before they were even conceived, and then you sort of follow the children that were born up to when they were in their fifties. So you basically follow their entire lifestyle, which I think it's kind of intrusive in a way. But when you think about um, science and health, it's actually very helpful because so the the famine happened around the um, 1944 1945. And the, the population that was conceived when the parents were experiencing uh, famine, so the, the, the children that were born as a result, they um, had sort of different, I wouldn't say different, like, uh, yeah, it's kind of different genes. So because of epigenetics, they were at higher um, risk of certain diseases as compared to children whose parents did not experience famine. So the diseases here were um, high blood pressure and diabetes. And how often do we hear, you know, we here, diabetes and high blood pressure as a very um, a big part of our you know disease world or health world these days because um, quite a lot of our population has it. So it's was very it's very interesting to look at the Dutch famine and finding out that oh the parents were actually in famine so they had less of the nutrition and yet the child that's being born has a higher risk for uh, the diseases that we sort of obviously associate with. So that that sounds like in that example the epigenetic effect wasn't entirely beneficial that there were some bad outcomes from it uh, so high blood pressure uh, and so on. Was there a, a good side to it? So uh, does the fact that their parents were deprived of food, was it helping them in some way or is it just a, uh, entirely negative? You know, that's a very good question. In fact, after this, I will definitely be looking it up. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we should uh, follow up with an Ask Fuzzy column or something like that. Yes. Uh, okay. And I like your thinking. You're thinking about the positive side. That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess if there is a positive side, then the positive side is that what we do as parents can affect how healthy our children are. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, you mentioned another researcher there in your earlier answer. You said uh, Baker or Barker? David Barker. So he um, came up with the Barker hypothesis. Um, but after his study, um, the, the reason why I'm not going in too much detail is because uh, it was only it was very much the beginning and foundation of epigenetic changes that can happen, um, bef you know, before a child is conceived. Um, but the reason why I'm not mentioning it too much is because his study primarily focused on the mother, because that's how it was. Um, you know, the other studies were also primarily focusing around mothers and you know consumption of alcohol uh, well, that and just smoking. reflected our understanding of the time. Did you say that was like uh, 1990s or something that kind yes, of time? Yes, 1990s. Yeah, 1980s, is, 90s. So this is early thinking about this kind of mechanism, right? Yes. Okay. And the idea that the father is important as well, where does that come from? So that was established um, while they were um, as, so part of it was sort of established when they were doing the, the Dutch famine study. So they, they, they had substantial proof, you know, you know, they have this population that both the mother and the father experienced famine. Um, but there was another study as well, that's the Chinese famine, where um, that study um, was also very important because they had conclusive evidence that if a child's mother has, for instance, experienced famine at the time of um, conception, then sure, the child has higher risk of these diseases. And if a child's father has experienced famine before conception, then uh, they all, the, child, the father can also transmit those genes. But if both the mother and the father ha both experienced it, then that will sort of um, amplify or, you know, have a higher a risk as you know as compared to one parent is involved so you get a double effect i'd like yes. to ask you a bit more about the chinese famine in a moment but uh you're on twitter and facebook right yes and you'd like to get people involved with your research and your facebook account is how they can do that but if people want to send us questions or comments during the course of our show today do you want to give out your uh, twitter and your facebook uh, details so if you want to ask me questions, you can go on to Twitter. Uh, the name is Sundus Nizamani. So S-U-N-D-U-S and then N-I-Z-A-M-A-N-I. -A -A -I, not the easiest name in the world. <laughs> uh, and this, the, the easier one would be Fit for Fertility. So it's on Facebook. It's F-I-T and then for the number four and then fertility. F-E-R-T-I-L-I-T-Y. Oh, that's catchy. Fit for Fertility. fertility. Yes. Okay, on Facebook. So send us a question or a comment, and uh, we'll be monitoring that during the course of the show here on Fuzzy Logic with my guest uh, Sundus Nizamani from the Faculty of Health at University of Canberra. Now, your research, you want to explore this effect a bit more. Tell me a bit more about that. So we've sort of established that there is a contribution from both the mother and the father. Now, the next step is how can we help the couples? How can we help prevent that? Um, so that's where my study comes in, because we are, are looking for couples um, who are thinking to have a child, you know, or they don't have a child at the moment. You are thinking to have a child in the next you know, couple of years. And we want to uh, recruit them into our study uh, because we want to. Uh, so I'll just go back a little bit, because while we do have the established fact that epigenetics does play a role and we uh, we're just trying to use Okay, I'm going to gather so, my thoughts here. So you're, you're looking for couples yes. who are planning to conceive. Yes. And you want them to participate in your study. Yes. And from what you've told me, then you want to monitor their lifestyle 
details or measure them, yes. record them, and then somehow you're going to look for effects in the in their children. So currently the study is um, not that established, so it's very in the preliminary phases, and that's because while we do we do have you know um, have studies that have focused uh, have targeted or recruited couples in uh, lifestyle you know behavior and weight loss sort of um, when I say weight loss. I, I primarily mean uh, weight maintenance, like if you're trying to gain weight, lose weight, basically it focuses on your healthy nutrition. There are studies that are, um, you know, doing that, but there are no studies that have primarily focused on the, um, you know, the the original thing that we're focusing on, which is metabolic syndrome, which is, um, I'll just um, use the word diabetes and high blood pressure. So preventing high blood pressure and diabetes in children. And then because of that, you're using recruiting couples. So there hasn't been any study that did that. So because of that, uh, we need my my first the the project that we're, we're doing is is that to establish what do the couples even want? Um, you know, how can we ensure that both the, you know, the mother and the father's needs are met in our uh, lifestyle program? So that's why I want you to tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Okay, so we've got a couple listening. Hi there, nice to have you on board here with Fuzzy Logic today. And look, you're really keen to go and be part of this study because it's fascinating stuff and it advances our understanding of health or how the human body works, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. What should uh, our friends expect? What are they going to have to do to be part of your study? So it's just an interview um, over the phone or online, whichever is um, convenient for them. So they just have to reach out on my Facebook page, uh, Fit for Fertility, and then they can just sign up. And when they sign up, it's not a con- it's not like concrete, like, okay, you have signed up. It's sort of like an expression of interest, and, uh, that, and then I can reach out, and then we can, um, you know, I can answer a few questions in the beginning, and then we can start the study, which will be just um, interviewing um, you know, couples and how, how you know what what they have considered about their health in terms of their child, and um, you know, if if we create a program, you know, the, that focuses on their health and nutrition, then what would they like to see so that we can make sure their needs are being met? Okay, so the participants get to shape their activities to some. Very much. So, are you yes. going to ask them to change their diet or their lifestyle, exercise habits, or anything like that? So the first step is to first um, establish what they want, and the second step would be, uh, which is will be the another study after that. That's where we get to shape their lifestyles, uh, lifestyle habits. But of course, for that we will have you know a team of specialists. We'll have you know nutritionists, physical activity specialists. So first they'll um, establish how they are. Uh, you know how their nutrition is at the moment, how their physical activity habits are, how their so uh, psychosocial um, you know habits are, um, they are um, then we can sort of mould or change accordingly. Right. Do you do you specifically want people in, in any risk groups, like diabetes risk group or obesity or whatever? Well, essentially, um, well that is the step that we I will consider um, for Later. the next study. Yes. But not at not at not, this, not at yeah, this because stage. in the first study it doesn't really matter because the st- first study is basically I can consider all couples that are thinking to have a, a child in the next couple of years because right now all we, because we want to make sure that the study is being molded according to their needs so you know whatever conditions or whatever needs so uh, is it almost needs they have then almost like a baseline yeah okay and how long would they be involved. So for the, uh, the the first the one that I'm doing right now is just a um, I would say 20 minute 30 minute interview over the phone. 
Oh, really? So yeah. that's really light touch. Yeah, that's really. Yeah, uh, we can go longer if you uh, you know if if you'd like, but I think twenty thirty minutes is sufficient for um, you know to just to get a basis of what you actually um, would like to, in the study. Oh, well, there you go. Well, that sounds very uh, unintrusive. I'm sure we could cope with that. And uh, we, we should get a flood of people wanting to be part of this because not only are you contributing to our knowledge about health, but it's just fun to see how science works and you could be part of it. So uh, on Facebook, it's at Fit for Fertility for, fertility, for yes. being the number. And it seems like a quite a complicated thing to do because, so if I smoke or I don't exercise or I have a high salt diet or do some of those things, how would you know that what I did uh, affected uh, my offspring? Well, that's something that uh, sort of has been observed in the study, I would say, but I, we can't really measure the exact percentage of how much of it was because of your parents, because then we can say, oh, you know what, let's blame our parents for everything. Um, but there is a certain amount of your own behavior, your own lifestyle choices, and you know the, the, the environment that you grew up in. So it's just you can't really measure the, the, the exact amount of effect that a uh, you know, parent can contribute, but there is an effect that is um, established. Yeah. It must be quite tricky because do you have a sense at this stage of whether it's a big effect or just a marginal one? Um, that, again, is something I would like to um, look into using my own study as well because uh, while, because currently the, the, the studies, there are no studies that have essentially, um, you know, focused on a couple and then on their, you know, future offspring, you know, longitudinally. So the studies that have been done have been done, I would say, retrospectively, like they, they took a population and they traced it back to their origin. So uh, I believe if we, if we can start from zero to hundred, we would be able to better establish that how much of it was caused by your parents and how much was it because of your own uh, lifestyle habits and, you know, your psychosocial um, sort of environments and you know, how much of it was you, how much was the environment, how was was your parents? So you, you have mentioned some studies. There's the Chinese famine and the Dutch famine and so on and uh, Barker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. got his name right. <laughs> uh, so the, but this is still quite an emerging field isn't it not a lot not a huge amount has been done on this compared to other branches of uh, biology or medicine right yeah that's true yes the, not a lot has been uh, well a lot has been done but it's just in the retro you know in the, in the big st stream of research you can uh, you can see that it's, it's still not a, as com uh, you know has compared to you know the the, the genetics overall but I, I, be I believe it's because the epigenetics is still fairly new and when something is new you can do a lot more research on it but you know in the big picture it's still um not enough well is, is it ever enough and, and it's quite <laughs> early in your phd research too i think isn't it are you in your first year of this or i've just started my uh, second year you just started your second year and you three years do you think four <laughs> Uh, I never ask a PhD person that, sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, so now where to next in your study? So you've got the in initial cohort of people. How, how many people are you hoping to get? Well, because the first one, we're just, uh, it's, a, it's a, a qualitative, so I believe... Um, 15 couples to 20 couples should, but that's very... Um, it's, 
it's purely research based like you can you can find saturation uh, so we can find that information is being repeated after 15 couples or 20 couples and that's based on other people who have done um similar research i would say so 15 to 20 couples okay so it's not a huge number but it probably also helps to eliminate the scientific method because what you're doing i think is you've got a really broad open approach at this stage mm. you've done your literature review of course <laughs> very extensively <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm sure you enjoyed that and uh but you start with a broad question and then you slowly refine your scope and 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 evolve what, where you're going okay so you've got this stage of the research and do you how much of an idea do you have about the next step after this one so um, I like that you mentioned the, uh, the literature review because, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> in the literature review, we did establish that uh, we found this strong evidence that epigenetics um, can, res you know, because of epigenetics, the mother and father can contribute to um, the, the child's health or unhealth as well. <laughs> but um, during, the, during the same literature review, we also observed that um, if it, there's, there's also this struggle, like when couples or when a person joins a, you know, a, a health program, you know, they join a gym or a nutritional program, they're not, it, they're able to uh, achieve results during the study. But once the study sort of completes, it's, it sort of, um, I would say, I wouldn't say easy, but it's just inevitable that they often revert back to their old habits. So, uh, but during the literature, we sort of um, have uh, sort of observed that it's it's it is possible to sustain those habits for for you know longer period of time um if you're recruiting both members of a couple so that's like the two um benefits of having couples a you're reducing the benefit uh, you know inc increasing the the chance of a child having um you know healthy life and b you're also having increasing chance of yourself having a healthy life so are you then anticipating that the behaviour of couples will be changed as a result of being in your study? Uh, yes, although changing behaviour, that does sound very wrong. <laughs> uh, we're, not, we're just uh, trying to um, uh, make it more healthy, make it more health-focused. Awareness. Awareness, yes, that's a very good word. Okay, because our, our listeners are a very well-informed bunch, and they will know about a thing called the Hawthorne effect. <laughs> and the Hawthorne effect was in uh, a factory run by that was owned by General Electric. And the researchers wanted to know the effect of the lighting and changing things in the office environment, how it affected the productivity of the people, of their workers. And so, yes, yeah, so they did a baseline. What they, they, they put these people in a, in a room, right? They separated them off so they control the variables, good scientific uh, practice. So I could see Sundas, you're looking at me uh, with a sceptical eye, which is appropriate. They changed the lighting and their productivity went up. Uh, they lowered the lighting, the productivity went up. They changed some other setting, their productivity went up. And no matter what they did, these people kept getting better and better. And what they hadn't counted on the fact was these people were now special. These people were now, we're part of the study. <laughs> and they had they had pulled them apart from the general population and there was group dynamics going on. So I find this question fascinating. In fact, I'm going to be writing a column for the paper soon, Does A Cause B? What's the difference between correlation and causation? Which is really, really tricky, probably the most tricky thing you have to do when you're practicing science, I think. 
<laughs> well, you know, let's just say that I'm also hoping to establish that how much of it was correlation and how much of it was uh, causality using my own study. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm sure you're very conscious of this because every scientist is. Yes. <laughs> do, do, do you have a way of, of guarding against it? I mean, you can't do a placebo in this case, can you? No, that would not be um, fair, I would say, because, you know, you're recruiting two people, you're not really providing them with any, um, well, no, I don't think we can do a placebo. But I mean, there have been similar studies with what they have done is they've um, um, have one a group as individuals, um, the other group was couples, and then they've sort of um, monitored their effects. Um, but, you know, as you said that um, the, the Hawthorne study, one of the things I believe, uh, or I'm just assuming here, uh, that ha had an impact on the increased productivity was because they were constantly being watched. So they knew they were part of the study. They knew they're, you know, they're, they're specialists, as you said. So that's why they did better. So in the studies that recruited couples and then another um, group as individuals and compared them, they didn't find... Um, uh, you know, big differences between those couples, well, uh, between the couples and individuals, they did find some differences. Um, but the reason being that because the individuals were also originally recruited as couples. So they thought, oh, you know what, we're, you know, even though we're not both going to be a part of the study, um, we'll both follow the uh, diet and lifestyle. So essentially being a part of a couple, being, you know, in, in imparting knowledge on both members of the couple did help um, that, you know, sustained that, that, habits. That's really interesting because you're not putting, you can't put a person into a test tube. <laughs> and, and and what you're describing here is the, the the psychology aspects of this are really significant, right? So you got you, you're talking about having an individual in the study and having couples in the study, and the dynamics of the way couples work versus the way an individual. Works yes. is really important, and you're really aware of that in your research. In my study, because it's still in a in a foundation, a beginning stage, and because I don't have much evidence on how couples would behave in an you know in a behavior a lifestyle study or what do they want, so we wouldn't really be having another group of um, individuals at this stage. Um, but we will um, maybe in the future, you know, well, maybe once we have enough substantial evidence of you know what the couples would. Uh, like and how they'll behave, then maybe we can have a comparative study. Yeah. Wishful thinking. That, that really strikes me as a, a, a problem or maybe I should say a challenge in doing any health research. So you've got the mechanical part, the technical bits, you've got the, the chemistry, the biology of the body, the nutrients that you take in and how much you physically exercise and so on. And then lay it over the top of this. You've got all this weird psychology of humans. I mean, look at the weird things that humans do. I believe we're talking about vaccines now. Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we, we are complicated, very messy, very messy beings. I think we might uh, <laughs> we might hit another music break. What do you reckon, Sundas? <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. And when we come back, we'll be talking, I don't know. Now, the... Uh, the recruiting couples has particular challenges and how do you go about doing that? Well, I understand why recruiting couples for this study would be challenging because it's it can appear as very invasive, but it, essentially we're just asking a few questions uh, over the phone and, you know, I wouldn't even know who you are. You wouldn't know who, I mean, you will know who I am, but I wouldn't know you, so I wouldn't, so it's really um, very private, very discreet, um, so it's um, personal questions, but in a very discreet uh, manner. 
So you, you've got to keep track of the person. So you have some kind of identifier, but is it anonymous? So uh, originally, you know, it will be identifiable, but only for um, the researcher. That's um, me. So only I'll be able to identify who said what. But right as soon as I come to the next stage, which would be right away, you know, when you're analyzing or when you uh, the data or just, you know, compiling the information, that's when I'll um, remove you the names. Won't. Yes. So even I wouldn't know who said what. Now, you, you had to go through an ethics committee process, I presume. Yes, um, the grueling ethics yeah, <laughs> committee yeah, process. Tell, tell me about that. Oh, you know, I absolutely have the highest respect for ethics because part of the reason why I got into research was, you know, reading about all these awful um, human experiments that happened in, in the past and my faith was restored in people when I found out that ethics committee is now much more, um, you know, active and responsible because it doesn't, have just their research team on it, like a few researchers or academic staff. It has, you know, representatives from, um, you know, different religious groups, um, different aspects of life. So it's just, it's a very, it's very broad. So they're making sure that all um, aspects of human um, or a person are, um, you know, being respected. And did you find any particular challenges? I imagine this was fairly straightforward, was it? Uh, yes, it's fairly straightforward because, again, it's just um, this one is only um, interviews over the phone. So we're not changing anything. We're not imposing anything. We're just sort of gathering information about um, what they would, you know, how much have they considered about their own health, in, you know, with regards to the child, whether they have thought about it or not, and what they would like to see in a, um, you know, health program. So a health program that I keep talking about um, essentially focuses on, um, well, the one that we'll have will focus on three components. So the first one will be um, nutrition. So I'll just use the word malnutrition here. Uh, mal is <laughs> the French word for bad. So it doesn't really mean that you're because I also kept mentioning the word famine. So it doesn't mean you're underweight or you know overweight or you're not you know, starving. You're not starving. You're not overeating. You, you can be at a healthy weight, but you still might be experiencing malnutrition because. Um, there's there's different components that you might of uh, diet that you might not be addressing. Oh, so you might be deficient in one vitamin, for example, or True. iron deficient, or whatever. Okay. So that's what uh, one of the uh, part of the study would uh, one of the part of the program would be around your nutrition. And we'll have, uh, don't worry, we'll have specialists on it. I'm not going to be um, making it up as I go. <laughs> they'll they'll monitor every uh, you know, and they'll provide your uh, detailed individualized. Um, um, program for the individual in the couple. So we're recruiting couples, but we're thinking about the mem. You know, each person is, you know, has their own um, diet and lifestyle. And the second component is the physical activity. So you know how you know whether you're exercising, how much you're exercising, your sitting habits. You know how many hours a day do you um, you know do you sit? Because a lot of work, um, you know, careers are often around sitting on desks. So that. You know, just monitoring how many hours you're doing that and how to um, slowly, you know, reduce the amount of hours you're sitting and improve your um, levels of physical activity. And the third one is psychosocial well-being. So we also want to ensure your mental health is, um, you know, um, good. <laughs> so your, your social connectedness, uh, 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 
So you're, health. you know, psychosocial health. So that involves yes. your mental health. So, you know, the stress, because we, you know, life has a lot of ups and downs. So you might be going through different stresses. So, you know, how to, uh, so we'll have, again, specialists who will guide you through better, um, be able to um, work through those stresses. And also, um, you know, because this is a couple space study. So how can, you know, each member of a couple help the other? Because there's a lot of, the reason why we're, fo- another reason why we're focusing on couples is that there, it's a very intimate bond. It's, you know, mental connectivity. There's, there's acknowledgement of and really understanding of what the other person is going through so that sort of um, connection is um, um, very important because then you can because you could be the better you could be at you know in a better position to help your partner um, using the tools that will be provided by the specialists well that could go either way they couldn't because it could be an unhealthy relationship is there any basis for excluding a person or a couple so sorry again (laughs) There, um, there's, oh, so the, the exclusion of a couple on the basis of psychosocial. So we're not, um, not sure at this point because that again is the third, uh, the next study. So in this first, the study that I'm doing right now will be around interviews and, you know, getting your feedback. So we'll use that information and that would help us establish the exclusion criteria as well. Well, aside from psychosocial, are there any other reasons for excluding a person or a couple? Well, you know, a couple who is not, um, you know, build the essential things, you know, having the cognitive um, uh, capabilities, they need to be able to make the decisions by themselves. So they're not, um, you know, they're not. But it sounds like there's no obvious one. So, no. so if, I'm, if I already had type 2 diabetes or if I was morbidly obese or something, I wouldn't be excluded. Uh, not from this study, no, because this study we're just trying to get more and more information. So you're not, you're not, it's not a very selective group other than the couples who are wanting to have a child. Over the next few years, and they haven't actually, you know, done... Um, uh, so they're thinking about having a child. They haven't actually, um, you know, done anything right, um, approached the um, ART, like the artificial reproductive techniques, like the IVF. So it's just essentially a couple who is only thinking uh, to have it in the next few years. And it doesn't matter whether it's first, second or other child? No, they haven't had a child yet. So a couple who has not had a child yet, Ah. that's the one we're targeting, yes. Ah, okay, that's important. So if you already have a kid... I'm sorry. Okay, why... Maybe in the future my study can lead up to, um, you know, findings and then maybe, in, you know, 10 years in the future we can find uh, five years in the future. Okay, so why why not people who've already had a child? Because, um, so that's where we are focusing on the mother as well, uh, primarily because the mother's, the, the physiology sort of changes after they've had a child. And the other factor is that, you know, a lifestyle and behavior habits, you know, the diet and physical activity habits of, a, you know, Parents who have a child are um, different from someone who doesn't have a child because when you have a child, you sort of become more responsible that, you know, you have to watch out for your behaviors. You need to, um, the diet, you're not, you know, the diet that you're uh, focusing on is also, um, I would say, I wouldn't say better, but it would be different as compared to someone who doesn't have a child. So the the attitude and the approach of a a person with a child is different to one who hasn't had one. Yes, very much so. Thank you. You so beautiful you put <laughs> okay well, no, no, it's, it's just really interesting to, because what we're talking about here is not just the epigenetics and health and nutrition and so on it's about how the scientific method works so that's why i like to know things about uh, you know cause and effect the hawthorne effect and i could tell that you already knew about the hawthorne effect yeah that's a biggie in any any study 
So what uh, what got you interested in this research? How did you come to be doing this? So for those of you who are listening, me, you know, I'm talking about psychosocial nutrition and physical activity. I'm actually a dental surgeon. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I worked a few years as well. And um, the reason that got me that into this research and you know was it, it, i had a lot of patients uh, particularly children who had a lot of um you know these dental decays you know they'll come with um rotting teeth and you know swollen mouths because um the disease had progressed so much and all of that was preventable and you know from you know just have to brush take care of your oral hygiene habits so that's what sort of essentially got me into thinking about prevention and then um i was very fortunate enough to meet uh, my supervisor professor sean somerset he uh, had this, you know, had this idea around how about we focus on prevention of diseases like um, diabetes and you know high blood pressure, and then we sort of created a team with um, we've got uh, you know assistant professor Rowe, we've got assistant professor um, uh, you know Roe McFarlane and Kathy uh, Knight Agarwal, so it's a it's a beautiful team now, and we're all um, hoping to find how much of um, you know health diseases are being caused by the epigenetic effect. Well, that's that's fascinating. So. The, the the principle in health is isn't it prevention is always better than cure i mean that's a bit of a cliche yes. but the cost of prevention if you're just taking dollars if you were just a hardcore money person <laughs> <laughs> the, the cost of prevention is like a fraction of what it would be to treat a disease true so i mean i i uh just using a dental example, my mother just, you know, used to take good care of our gums when, you know, when we, before we even had our teeth. And um, so that's when this habit was established. So, you know, when you're six months old, your mom is wiping your gum. So you sort of grew up knowing that was a thing. So um, I'm proud to say, and I'm going to knock on wood, none of me and, the, me and my siblings, none of us have um, ever had a dental decay or a dental problem in our lives. So prevention does work. <laughs> Oh, so let's oh, really? redirect it towards maybe, you know, diabetes and high blood pressure. Yes, well, we all like having our teeth drilled. So, yeah, yeah I, I wish I had known a bit more. When I was a, a small child, the dentist always used to say, oh, what good teeth I had. But then, of course, I liked biscuits and stuff like that. And I probably wasn't good enough. And we brushed our teeth. And I mentioned to you at the, at the top of the program that my mother took fluoride tablets you, yes. you 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 could have jumped on that one. Do you, did now, you do you want to comment on that? So I immediately looked at your teeth right away. <laughs> so I can see that they didn't have too much of an effect on you, but based on the the you know basic observation, because if you take too much fluoride um, when you are well, the the main thing that happens if you take too much fluoride is that it can. Um, it can have non-dental effects on the the fetus, but if you uh, take um, you know not not toxic amounts of fluoride, then they can have an effect on the child's teeth. So not, maybe the, the, the first teeth that they have, the primary teeth may not be, um, it not, may not be obvious, but the permanent teeth, um, you might observe some stains, you know, the discoloration. So we think we associate fluoride with white teeth, but you can see brown stains on a person. And then, but a dentist would know that that was because of fluoride and yeah, you know, I, I think time, I yeah. think my mother was pretty well informed. And so she took the appropriate dose but interesting see there you go there's an example and i'm not sure whether water was fluoridated back then and, and i don't know if you want to get diverted into fluoride <laughs> because but oh it, i can talk for hours and hours oh you can all right <laughs> no well. but i believe i think we should go 
redirect to the study. Okay, let, let, let's let's go back to your study because what, what what have we not covered there, Sanders? Well, I'm just going to shout out the the Facebook page name again. So it's Fit for Fertility, F I T for Fertility, F E R T I L I T Y. Uh, you can just sign up. You can ha- um, you just have to put in some of your details, and I'll get back and you know get in touch with you as soon as possible. Okay. But I, I'm still I'm still interested in the the dentistry. I'm not sure where go to right go ahead. next with your your current research. So, um, I, I find dentistry interesting, and I wanted to interview my dentist a few years ago, and he was really good. Uh, but uh, the the parallel here is the the technical, the physical, the biological part of it versus the psychology of it. And what my dentist used to do was he would draw on the whiteboard my tooth. He had a little whiteboard next to the dental chair and he said, okay, this is what I'm going to do to your tooth. And he explained to me and I go, oh, I really like that. Now I can see because my first dentist that I remember was my mum's school friend and he was a shocker. Oh, no. He was a shocker. He, uh, his personal skills were pretty well nil and you had all this row of chairs so there was an open to the next room and you could hear this wow with a drill uh, and then he would only go okay what's happening and he'd peer inside my mouth and then next thing he'd, he'd grab a drill oh no and I'm going well, well what's happening and, and I developed a real phobia of going to the dentist oh I can imagine <laughs> yes yeah, and then one no. and then one day uh, a chunk of my tooth fell off. I was eating a multi-grain bread and the seed cracked oh, one of the cusps no. oh. off my tooth. And I went, you know what, I'm not going back to him. <laughs> I'm not going back to him. <laughs> and so I went to Yvonne, that's right, here in Lynham. And, uh, <laughs> oh. and she was great, she was friendly, she explained to me. Uh, we, we talked and... But it was treating me as a person, yes. not just as a set of teeth. Exactly. That's even though that is the basic dental. Um, the, in, in our you know med, med school, or dental school, we are taught to treat people as people, and you know disease comes second because we are not um, you know just looking at the people's teeth. It's not just you know and a standalone entity <laughs> these are connected to the people so but um when i was working um with children part of the reason why um i i started to focus more on prevention was because um i really didn't like looking at so many children with so much pain because children no matter how, you know i i had this policy that the parent or you know any of the staff members cannot grab the child so the child is you know has their autonomy they're sitting by themselves they they know what's going to happen i will even tell them that you know they're they're, getting, they're going to get the needle or not and how much it's going to hurt because then i noticed that a child would cry for a few seconds or just you know wince in pain for a bit and then they'll you know they'll just overcome it because they'll you know they'll be brave about it or even if they cry it's okay to cry so it's just giving them having making sure that they feel like they have um a say in their um you know, health behaviors, that was um, very important. But still, seeing so many children every day, would, it's just sort of painful for me. So I thought, let's focus on prevention. Uh, okay, so children, you're looking at cases where I shouldn't really need to be doing this bit of work. But, yes, exactly. And clearly you're from the, the, the newer generation of dentists. I think uh, the, my dentist story, he was old, old school. And um, it, I would say it's like it's personal, different, you know, person to person. It, it was a personality <laughs> thing as well, yeah. 
But you mentioned pain. Now, I, 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 I hope you don't mind me diverting <laughs> no, because I, this is an, another fascinating thing. So our perception of pain is so crucial because it's an incredibly subjective thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the factors I think is, and you kind of alluded to it in your story just now, Sundus, and that is the feeling of whether you have any control over the pain. Yes. So that's why even if I had, so we had this, um, you have this gel that you can apply before you give the injection, before you give the needle. So even for adults, if they, I feel like they're apprehensive, I would apply the gel. The gel does numb the pain, but the needle goes a bit deeper than the top layers, but it will still give them the sense of, you know, okay, the, the, it's not going to hurt that much. So that that's because of the pain is subjective and the perception of pain is also um, subjective. So having that gel um, helped. And I like the word subjective because um, the, the perspective of how a healthy a person, because I can take it back to my own study about, you know, a person can think that they're, you know, they're, they're, they have a normal weight. They're, you know, they're taking care of um, essentially, you know, taking care of their diet, but maybe they're still missing out a few important nutrients that a child may need. And that's where it's very important to mention that both the father and the mother are vital because when it comes to the mother, she'll start, you know, she'll start taking care of those, you know, taking those, you know, vitamins and, um, you know, different micronutrients and macronutrients that will help her um, through the pregnancy and, um, you know, ha having a healthy uh, child. But um, if we include the father, we sort of think that, okay, it's before the child is even conceived. So your perception of health might not be accurate. So sign up for, you know, to my study and find out whether, how close you are to having the ideal health. <laughs> that, that's, that's really interesting. And, and because you're including the father, you're making the father part of the equation. Yes. It's uh, because, you know, it's, it's time for equality, as we say. So we, uh, to, and that extends both ways, though, you know, the, you know, the, if, if, let's, if you're getting the father more involved before the child is even conceived, then that sort of um, changes the mindset. You sort of, um, I would say you become happier before you even have the child, you know, thinking about the prospect, you know, um, because sometimes when you think about having a child, you think, about, you know, mom will be thinking about um, the health and, but also, you know, dressing up in different outfits. But if you involve the father by you know by talking about epigenetics then they also might get you know become more involved well in the you know beginning right from the beginning as well yeah and we're talking i think about the psychology of why people pursue some healthy habits and, and other people don't why some people are prone to maybe alcohol abuse or oh, this is a complicated subject in its own or, or unhealthy eating, or obesity, or sugars, and so on and so on. That's a whole show almost on its own, do you think? Very much so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're, uh, uh, you're, we want people to go on to your Facebook page, which is... Uh, Fit for Fertility, so F-I-T, four is a number, Fertility. At, um, it's, on, it's on Facebook, you can um, look it up, and there's a button on there you can sign up, or you can send a message if you're, you know... Um, apprehensive, just like people are apprehensive about the pain, the dental pain. <laughs> and you'll have fun, if nothing else. Yes, you'll, you'll, you know, it's it's primarily around education, so you'll you'll learn a lot. It's it's uh, it's actually helping you quite a lot. You'll um, you'll learn to identify your own, um, um, you know, unhealthy behaviors or you know less than healthy behaviors, and then 
have a very healthy life. So it's not just about the children. It's also about making how, you know, couples themselves can live a healthy life so they can live longer with their children. Well, there you go. And that's that's a really strong motivation, isn't it, for a, a person that when you, when you bring a child into a family it, and you were alluding to it, why you want uh, first-time parents, not second-time or third-time parents, because your whole outlook changes once you've had a child. Yes. And how, how's this for a segue, Sundus? The uh, Ask Fuzzy column that we run in the Canberra Times and Oz Community Media, we go out across the, uh, the network of newspapers there, our column, Injection. <laughs> All right, here we go. You've got a crack in your building, a crack in your teeth. Uh, what do you do if the ground dries around your house? Well, you can inject stuff into the plastics into the soil, expanding plastics, and it pushes the foundations back up again. We had it done at our house, in fact. So we had somebody writing a story for us today about the service they do, they oh, provide. I look forward to reading that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the Ask Fuzzy column. All right, well, I think we're, we're just about uh, out of time, Sundas. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. It has been fun, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the show. And uh, Cause and Effect, I think that's going to be a soon-to-be-viewed, soon-to-be-read, talked-about <laughs> <laughs> column uh, in Ask Fuzzy, does A cause B? <laughs> I'm going to do that one, correlation versus causation. And that's it from me. Uh, Got to go. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll see you again someday. <laughs> we will. Catch you later.